This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me again here on Pop Culture Confidential and I'm very happy to welcome my guest this week who's going to help us navigate the 20 or so days ahead of the U.S. election. In 2011, when he was only 24 years old, David Litt was hired as a White House speechwriter and for almost five years he wrote speeches for President Obama. David was the lead writer on four White House correspondence dinners, so he did the funny stuff as well. In 2017, he wrote the book Thanks Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years, which became a New York Times bestseller. And now he's out with his excellent new book, Democracy, in One Book or Less. David Litt, it's so nice to talk to you again. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for having me. So we're talking to each other on Wednesday. You're on the East Coast. It's 10 a.m. or so. Every hour, something is happening. In just a few weeks, we've had Trump taxes, debates, super spreader events, COVID diagnosis from the president. And just this week, the president basically said that he's kicked COVID and is off doing a whole bunch of in-person MAGA rallies. So I wanted to start by asking you, how do you see the president's message right now this week? I think the president's message is really designed to make him look tough. And that's not working terribly well, at least if you look at the polling, because I think most Americans are more concerned about whether or not he's responsible. So I think you see this disconnect, and it's been true throughout this presidency, but it's especially true right now between what President Trump and his closest advisors think matters to voters and to the American people more broadly, and what voters and the American people say matters to them. And that's on full display right now, particularly in the middle of not just a pandemic, but another spike in cases in the United States. You have the president holding these super spreader rallies with no social distancing, no masks. And then he's out there, you know, his latest thing is to like do a little dance in front of the crowd to show how healthy he is, um, which would be strange in the best of times. But right now it just looks so tone deaf. So I I think what we're seeing is this kind of uh, sharp divergence between what the president and his base think America is about and what this moment is about and what the rest of the country thinks. And the Republicans seem to have a very lax view on COVID. I mean, even now during the hearings, uh, Senator Mike Lee was there just a few days after he'd got a positive COVID test. It seems to be almost that they're on message, all of them saying that we're fine, we're out there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't grow up that long ago. I'm 34. But I remember hearing that Republicans were the party of small government or that the Republicans were the party of limited government or, or fiscal responsibility or any number of other things. Um, and I think now the, the Republicans are largely the party of doing the opposite of what the science says, doing, you know, they um, remind me of like the bully who, uh, you know, picks on, on someone in the playground. And then when they get caught, they say, hey, it's a free country. Um, and that was like a bad argument when you were seven. But now it seems to be the defining argument of a political party. So it's, it's fairly easy to take the Republican sort of establishment position. You, you just figure out what experts think is responsible and you do the opposite of that. And that seems to become on taxes, on COVID, on climate change, on immigration, over and over and over again. Um, that's, that's the plan now. Uh, I, I don't know exactly how it happened, but it's, uh, it's where we are. Mm-hmm. 
how would you analyze Trump's latest speeches these past few days? Well, Trump's speeches have always been uh, hard to analyze in that they're disjointed. They're very long. Um, you know, he spoke for an hour on Saturday, and I think that was one of the shortest rallies he's ever done. But at the same time, they are not meant for me. And I think that's clear and important. Um, you know, they're, they're closer to a revival meeting than a typical speech. And they are often covered in ways that don't, um, that don't reflect just how bonkers they really are. So uh, I don't know that Trump's speeches are, I mean, it clearly is a work of rhetoric. They're, I don't even think they qualify. But I think that um, as a political tool, they're really good at rallying his base. I think the, the important thing to pay attention to at this point in the campaign is that if you're President Trump or, or his speechwriters in as much as he has them, um, you're looking at the polls. And, and unless you're truly deluded, you're realizing that the people who love you are not enough to get you over the finish line. And then you have a question, which is a question most presidents face well before three weeks until their reelection, which is, do you talk to everybody or do you just talk to your base? And for this entire presidency, and even now, what's remarkable is that President Trump is only talking to his base. I mean, he's, he's retweeting offensive stuff about Joe Biden, you know, that's attacking seniors. Um, today, I think the big story they're pushing is like something in the New York Post about Hunter Biden, which is very similar to the stuff that got Trump impeached in the first place. And so you're seeing a campaign laser focused on its base. You're seeing a Republican Party that isn't really interested in expanding outside its base. And to me, the danger is people say, well, if we can't win with our base fair and square, we'll just try to undermine democracy so that our base is the only voters that counts. According to the latest polls, it does say that Biden is in the lead. These coming 20 days, what will his messaging be? Well, the interesting thing about all political campaigns is that all of them, or at least all good ones, are about contrasts. And because Donald Trump is such a um, oxygen-stealing figure in the media, and right now in American life, there's all sorts of contrasts that almost make themselves. I mean, it, when Joe Biden does a socially distanced event with a small crowd where he's wearing a mask and everyone is protecting themselves, he doesn't need to say, look at how Trump has handled himself and handled the pandemic. It, the message is very clear. And so I think you'll probably see a continuation of that. I think you'll also see the question for the Biden campaign be, you know, they're, they're in the driver's seat. And so how do they keep doing what they're doing? And, you know, I, I think for the most part, um, there's a reason political campaigns, when they're winning, tend to be risk averse. So I think you'll see them try to do what, they, what they're doing and not let Trump's sort of chaos bump them off track in the final days. And then the last thing I would say is we are switching from a point of the campaign where the, the primary goal is persuading voters to the point of the campaign where the primary goal is getting people out to vote. And so I do think that that's going to become an important part of the messaging for the Biden campaign as well, because you have a huge number of voters, a decisive number, where ultimately the question will not be, do they vote for Biden or Trump? The question is, do they vote for Biden or do they not vote? And that will decide the election. Yeah, I want to get into that because one of the very, very interesting parts of your book and a very scary element of this one is, is voter suppression. You write that it is more difficult to vote in the U.S. than in most developed democracies. You have examples like the less white your neighborhood is, the longer you have to wait. I mean, clearly, politicians don't want us to vote. Talk a little bit about this and, and why that is. 
in the United States, the way our electoral system is set up, um, voting is not a right. Uh, that's a, a misconception that a lot of Americans have because we believe that voting is a right. As, as a society, if you ask most Americans, they would say that. I certainly would. But our constitution does not have voting rights enshrined within it. Some state constitutions do. And the, for the most part, we leave election laws open to state governments, state legislators. And so what that means is we've created this process where, yes, you can go out and win elections by persuading people who might not vote for you to vote for you. But another way to win elections, and it's been used throughout American history, is to find the people who are least likely to vote for you and make sure they can't vote or make it really difficult for them to vote. And that's antithetical, not just to our sense of fairness, but also to what a democracy is, because what that does is it separates power from accountability. Um, rather than saying, I'm going to try to do a good job to get reelected, somebody saying, I'm going to do whatever I want, and then I'm also going to, in parallel, try to keep people from voting. And that, when, when that happens, um, you know, you may ha have a republic sort of in name, but uh, if, if that goes too far, then you lose all of the sort of essential elements that make you a democracy or a republic. How would you say that Trump is maneuvering this now? What kind of things are you seeing in terms of voter suppression? I mean, the New York Times put this well recently. They said, you know, the way that Trump is behaving now, you can't really find a democracy that, that there's an analogy to. Um, Trump is publicly calling on the Department of Justice to arrest Joe Biden. Uh, it, it's the kind of behavior that we've all become numb to, but there's no question that if he could do that, that's what he would do. Um, and so that's something we're not seeing in countries that we would consider democracies at all. Now, it, it's to the credit of American institutions that that has not happened yet, but the Department of Justice under Attorney General uh, Bill Barr has become extraordinarily politicized, going out of its way to do the president's political favors rather than trying to apply the law. And then similarly, the State Department has said they're going to re release Hillary Clinton's email. So that's one side of it, is using the government and the tools of government. And I should add to his attacks on mail-in voting, coupled with his attacks on the Postal Service, um, that will make mail or could make mail uh, run slower. Um, so that's one piece, is the president is using the government to try to win re-election. And then the other piece is working together with a variety of um, Republicans in state government what we're seeing is a mix of outright suppression and, and what I call intentional incompetence. So right now um, in Georgia, you have lines that are, uh, you know, I just heard 10 hours to vote early. Now it would be easy to set up more polling places, to set up more voting sites because everyone knew early voting was going to be wildly popular, but the, the state legislators have the, who are Republican, the, they control the state legislature, they have not, funded additional polling sites, even though they knew this would happen, not because they were making a mistake and not because they didn't have the money, they could find the money. It's because they didn't want people to be able to vote quickly. They didn't want to have short voting lines. They wanted long voting lines in predominantly African-American counties. So that kind of thing is happening all over the country. Um, the one thing I would say to close this all out is that we're also seeing an enormous backlash to that. I think we're seeing a lot of Americans going and voting precisely because they're infuriated that politicians would try to take their voting rights away. So you're seeing a surge in, in voting? I think so far. It's hard to say because with the pandemic, people are voting in so many different ways 
and there's been a real push among Democrats to get their voters to vote early. But the, um, if, the, if the hope for people engaged in voter suppression was drive down the early vote, which certainly that was one of their goals, that has not worked. Um, and I think what you're seeing around the country is there is a, a growing sense of, you know, um, President Obama put this pretty bluntly, democracy is on the ballot. And so people are responding to that idea that the stakes are higher than ever. And if you believe the stakes are higher than ever, you're willing to put up with more in order to vote. So you can see this backfire. Um, and hopefully it will, because that's ultimately the way you get rid of voter suppression. If it stops being politically effective, people stop doing it. Um, another thing is the Supreme Court and the courts in general, um, which we're, of course, seeing in real time now with the hearings and everything. But um, the GOP is continually threatened, and Trump just said yesterday in Pennsylvania, that the Democrats will pack the courts if Biden wins. But if Barrett is sworn in, in four years, Trump will have appointed three Supreme Court judges. And I don't know how many judges in the lower courts. You may know that. 218, yeah. 218. The Republicans are, I've heard you say that they're playing something called the long game. Are they doing this with the courts? So I think they have done this with the courts. I actually think they may have overplayed their hand a little bit, although that is partly what I am. I'm combining what I hope and what I think. So um, it's hard to tell. So if you look back, starting in the 1970s, Republicans um, and, and especially big conservative donors, um, people like John Olin, who was a um, arms magnate, uh, the Coke Industries, um, the Bradley brothers in Wisconsin, the, these large donors, often in, in polluting industries, though not entirely, were very concerned about the what they saw as a liberal move, liberal, liberal shift in the courts. And what they started to do was engage in a decades-long court packing effort. So they funded their own programs at law schools to create new theories of law that would allow them to do whatever they wanted to do. They, um, uh, they started the Federalist Society. They invested in that. The Federalist Society is basically, um, uh, what's it, it's kind of a support group for right-leaning lawyers and judges, but it's a way of forcing ideological dogma uh, over and on top of judicial independence. And then they started to nominate judges, beginning with Ronald Reagan. Republicans have been nominating judges first and foremost, based on their ideology, not based on whether they bring diversity to the bench, not based on whether they have the best credentials, but specifically on what are the outcomes of putting this person on the bench? How can we legislate from the bench? Now you have a situation where the majority of judges have been picked through the system where they are in effect political operatives, whether they know it or not. That's the reason they're there. Um, I think this we're seeing this with Amy Coney Barrett. It's an excellent example. President Trump said, I'm only going to nominate judges who overturn the Affordable Care Act. Whether, I'm sure Amy Coney Barrett thinks that she is an independent and brilliant jurist, and by all accounts, she's very capable and you know, she's very accomplished as a legal scholar, but the reason she was nominated and someone else was not was because she's going to overturn the ACA, she's going to overturn Roe v. Wade, and so she is both sort of a philosopher king or queen in this case, but she's also a pawn in a broader game. And also to get this done before the election. Exactly. So that's the, the other thing that is so worrying about this is that um, Trump is, again, saying the quiet part out loud. And he's saying, you know, I need nine justices. I need more justices so that if I try to pull something that is blatantly illegal before the election, um, I have people who owe me a favor and will rule in my favor. Mm -hmm. It may work. It may not. 
but it makes the entire process both illegitimate and deeply worrying for Americans who have grown to trust that the courts will be independent from politics. And so that's where we are now. Um, the challenge for uh, Republicans at this point is their entire strategy depends on doing everything within their power to pack the court and then hoping the Democrats won't respond in kind. Because there's lots of things Democrats could do to unpack the court that are totally constitutional, that are not wildly difficult to do um, in, the, in the legal process. Um, so the question becomes whether uh, Democrats decide, as Republicans did, that the court is so important that it's worth using your constitutional authority in unprecedented ways involving. I mean, I think, I think you're seeing Republicans make a very strange argument, which is we are moving heaven and earth to confirm a justice in the last minute. We're risking a super spreader, another super spreader event uh, during these hearings. We're doing all of these unprecedented things. But also think of the integrity of the courts. It would be, you know, uh, somehow a deep violation of principles for Democrats to do anything about it. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone really believes that. But it, it's interesting when the best argument one can muster is on its face pretty, pretty farcical. Someone you write about is the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who you write, no politician has so openly treated accumulating power as a sport. Well, Mitch McConnell is doing what he always does. And to be fair, he does it quite well. Um, rather than look at principles and norms and precedents and all of the other things that one imagines or one might associate with a statesman, he basically looks at the rule book and says, according to the letter of the law, what can I get away with? How much power do I have and how can I use it to the greatest extent possible? And interestingly, that's one of the reasons he and Donald Trump have become such close allies. It's also the way that Trump has always looked at power, and whether it's you know, involving his taxes, his businesses, or his campaign. And now what you're seeing is McConnell rushing through a nomination with the help of the uh, Judiciary Committee Chair Lindsey Graham in a way that is um, not just unseemly, but really dangerous because this is now, you know, we're moving incredibly quickly. Um, it's literally dangerous. We had a super spreader event to announce this justice or this, this nominee in the Rose Garden. We may be having another super spre spreader event uh, during the hearings because you have COVID positive senators speaking without masks. Maybe we'll dodge a bullet there, but we don't know. And then the Senate is going to vote, um, you know, not just by the way, before the next president's inaugurated, but try to vote in the next 20 days while Americans are still voting. Um, you know, even small things, they're doing the markup on the bill that would advance her nomination to the floor, I believe. And that's, you know, that, that's like a in the weeds legislatively, but it's the kind of thing that you normally wait to do. And McConnell is rushing, rushing that process too. So what you're seeing is um, the guiding principle of Mitch McConnell is, if I can get away with it, I'll do it. And that is also the guiding principle of Donald Trump. And the question is going to be over the long term, how do Americans respond to that? And then how do Democrats respond to that if and when they regain power? As we heard yesterday, there, there's a lot of speechifying going on, not as many questions as you would think, and she's not answering any of them. Will she deliver what they want? I don't think any judge will deliver 100% of what their allies want or what a president wants. I think Justice Barrett, if she becomes a justice, will deliver an extraordinarily, extraordinarily high amount of what her backers want. Um, you know, they, they have been, uh, they have turned judicial nominations into a science 
where they're terrified of having someone who is going to rule in an independent way or in an unpredictable way. So they're handpicking, you know, of all the judges in the country, not to mention all the people who aren't judges in the country, they are picking specific people who they think are going to rule in extremely consistent ways. And Judge Barrett has, by the way, not given any indication that she wouldn't. One of the remarkable things about these hearings, you know, the Supreme Court hearings, and this is not just this one, have become this sort of farce because no one will talk about their views about the job they're trying to to apply for. Um, but, you know, Ju Judge Barrett, ha she's written, or she's co-signed, rather, letters saying that abortion is murder and she and talk, and saying that Roe v. Wade was barbaric. Um, she's spoken, she's given paid speeches to uh, a group that is designated by the Southern Poverty Law Center, an anti-gay hate group. You know, she, she's done a variety of things. Right? She said that the decisions upholding the Affordable Care Act were poorly reasoned. So clearly she doesn't agree with them. So what's remarkable about all this is we know what she thinks and we know what she thinks, not just in her personal capacity, but in her professional capacity. But for some reason, while doing a hearing, that apparently is, is uh, not something that we can, we can discuss or that we are supposed to pretend we don't know anything about. So those, those are all of the reasons she was nominated, is that it's actually fairly predictable how she'll rule on some big issues. The one thing I will say, just as a kind of like lay constitutional law nerd, is that I think it's a little bit less clear how she might rule on some economic issues because that is, she doesn't have as, as long a record on that. So it's possible that she could be a surprise there, but it's also possible she could be a surprise in a way that deeply disappoints um, progressives or, uh, or liberals. So we'll, we'll have to see. That's a little bit more of a wild card. Changing focus a bit here. I don't think in my lifetime I've ever experienced so much, so many lies in politics, QAnon, media hoaxes, people believing all kinds of things. Why do you think we have come to that? I think there's a few different reasons that um, truth is under attack in an unprecedented way. So one of them, and, and I don't think this is um, you know a, a unique thought to me, is I do think that the growth of social media has taken away the gatekeepers. You used to have a set of editors and producers and so on who would kind of say, this is, this is true, this is false, this is within the realm of reasonable discourse, and this is not. Um, now you've seen that fall by the wayside, where if you put a video online and it gets 2 million views, there's nobody telling you that you're not allowed to say what you just said, except in extremely rare cases and with a lot of pressure um, on these social media companies. So that's one element. I also think another element is there is a culture of dishonesty that starts at the top. Uh, one of the things I noticed when I worked in the White House was, you know, any office reflects the culture of the, of, or reflects the personality of whoever leads it. And when you have a party and an executive branch that's being run by Donald Trump, who, who I don't think really makes a distinction between truth and falsehood. He just says whatever he thinks will be advantageous to him in the moment and does not care about whether it's true or not. Um, that has started to really filter through the government. And I think um, partly because the, the sense that many of his Republican allies have gotten is there actually weren't re repercussions. One of the reasons they didn't lie all the time was because they thought, well, you know, if I lie all the time, something bad will happen. Well, no, he's still the president. He, he got acquitted um, after the impeachment trial. You know, the, the Mueller report uh, ultimately didn't uh, produce any damning um, evidence, at least not enough to affect his presidency in any major, major way. Now you could argue Biden is way up in the polls because people don't trust Trump, but that's a longer term horizon than a lot of politicians think. 
And so I think what you're seeing is a variety of people say, oh, hey, the rules have changed. I'm allowed to lie. And then the question just becomes, are politicians good people? And the answer to that question has never been an unequivocal yes. So he has said in no uncertain terms that he will not commit to a peaceful transfer, President Trump. What do you see happening? I think that President Trump doesn't totally know what he wants to do, but he's not going to go gracefully. Um, I think we all know that. So I think there's a few possibilities. I, I don't think we should discount President Trump could still win the election outright. Um, it's unlikely, but you never know. Let's put that aside for a second. I think there's also a growing possibility that, that Biden wins by a large margin. Um, that's far from certain, but if that happens, it's going to be very difficult for President Trump to, to uh, make leaving a an issue. I think what is more likely in the case of a close election where you know one or two states decide the election and those states are down within one percentage point, half a percentage point, but Biden seems to be winning or Trump seems to be winning, is that the president will take extraordinary measures um, and totally illegal measures to try to, to stop the vote counting at a place that is advantageous to him. So that could involve trying to throw out large batches of mail-in ballots. It could involve trying to invalidate mail-in ballots over small um, you know, rules issues whether that's legal or not. It could involve trying to pressure state legislators to uh, appoint electors to the Electoral College rather than allow the American people to do it. It's not clear that any of these things will work, um, but it does seem likely that he will try. And then I think there is always the possibility that he says um, this election was illegitimate and I'm not leaving. But I think that becomes, um, you know, that that's where it could end up in court. And that I will say, and I could be wrong about this. There, I think, unless there is some valid or at least plausible legal claim, um, I don't. I think it's going to be very hard for the Supreme Court to to sort of rule in Trump's favor for no reason. And you can see from this answer, I'm kind of thinking through this out loud. I guess the way that I tend to think about it is, if right now um, Trump needs to, he can win the presidency, but losing by about let's say two percent uh, of the popular vote and he'll still win the electoral college and become president. And then I would add to that another percent or percentage point and a half to say, he's in charge of the government. He has absolutely no shame and no scruples. There's a chance that he could lose by three or three and a half and through some kind of election manipulation, make up the difference to get him to, to losing by two, which would be enough to win the electoral college. Um, so it gives him a small advantage that isn't priced into the polls. Once you get beyond that, you know, if he starts to lose, if he loses by large margins, it becomes much more difficult. It's not impossible, but it, it, it's much more difficult. It's also going to come, come down to a question of how many conservatives are, are truly comfortable living in an authoritarian um, state and not, not, in a, not in the way that we've talked about it so far, where Trump is doing things that authoritarians would like to do. But what if he does them? What are, what's going to happen next? You worked for many, many years with uh, President Obama. How are you seeing what is his tactic during this election? You know, it's, it's interesting because I think President Obama is probably the second most trusted figure in public and political life right now. And the most trusted figure is probably Michelle Obama. And so that is an extraordinary asset to Democrats during this campaign, to Biden during this campaign. You just, and, and it helps, um, alleviate some of what we've just talked about. So for example, you just had President Obama do these videos um, targeted to voters who are not sure how to vote in their states by mail and how to fill out a ballot. 
And so hopefully that will get people to send in their ballots earlier. It'll get them to send in ballots that don't get rejected or have to be corrected because of small errors. So that kind of thing, speaking directly to voters, we've seen President Obama do. And then I believe um, yesterday, uh, I, I think I heard this, that uh, Biden said Obama will hit the socially distanced campaign trail for the final few days. And I think that's actually pretty wise because one of the things we've seen about politics these days is stories come and go so quickly. So I think just the fact that Obama is back on the campaign trail, that is, um, it's not an October surprise, but it's a big October story that the Biden campaign has in its pocket and they can deploy when they want to. Do you see any more October surprises coming from Trump? I mean, every day is an October surprise, but. Um, I, I think it's, um, I mean, we, we've had, you know, uh, several decades worth of October surprises and it, we're not halfway through October yet. But I think that surely something will happen that we're not seeing. Right now, what we're seeing is the Trump administration trying to manufacture an October surprise through Hillary's emails. There's this weird story in the New York Post today with Giuliani and Hunter Biden. It's like an impeachment redux. Um, I don't think that that is going to have the same impact. You know, we're at a moment when cases are rising. Um, you know, we're creeping back up toward a thousand deaths per day. I just don't think Hillary Clinton's emails from when she was Secretary of State, uh, you know, eight years ago. Uh, that does not seem like something that uh, voters are going to say, well, now I'm really changing my mind. But you never know. I think what's, what's more likely is you have a president as erratic as President Trump. Uh, he tends to generate October surprises. One I think we haven't really priced in is he seems healthy, um, but he's also hopped up on steroids. So the question becomes, and we don't know what to believe about his health because his doctors are being misleading. We know that. A lot of COVID patients have had, uh, you know, the moments where they're getting better. And then if you withdraw steroids, things change. That, that might not mean he goes back to the hospital, but it could mean that his health deteriorates a little bit. I'm not sure that's going to happen. I think it'd be bad for the country if the president is unhealthy. But I think the idea that the big October surprise, which is the president's irresponsible behavior coming home to roost and him getting COVID, uh, the idea that that's over, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily... Uh, subscribe to that, or at least not um, not 100%. I thought we'd end off on a funnier note because you wrote some of the funniest speeches for Obama. I was doing a thing on SNL where some of the writers were saying that one of the most difficult people to parody ever has been Obama. You devised a genius thing where you had Keegan-Michael Key playing Obama's anger translator. But tell me a little bit how you're feeling about this group of SNLers and how they're doing with Biden, who you also know what very well. So I should say, by the way, the, the Luther, the anger translator with Keegan-Michael Key, I was happy to be part of it when he did it with Obama, but that was not my idea. That was a character he did with Jordan Peele. Right, but it was genius to bring it in. <laughs> uh, yes, and, and you know, again, um, just to give credit where it's due, President Obama, not surprisingly, really liked that character. So we kept getting requests from the president year after year saying, can we do the anger translator? <laughs> or we'd hear the president really wants to do the anger translator. So, and, and it, was, it was a really effective way because it wasn't really a parody of Obama so much as pointing out something, something absurd involving Obama. And anytime you talk about comedy like this, it gets really not funny really quickly. Like nothing is less funny than talking about what makes comedy funny. Um, but I think what is interesting about the challenge that, you know, I, I have friends who write for SNL and, and the challenge that they're facing right now is Biden has been so many different people or so many different uh, roles. I think that's a better way to put it during his political career. 
And so on one, you know, so it's hard to figure out exactly what his, his role is now. And uh, so I don't know. I think it's, I think however they, they'll go after it will be interesting. I think the other thing will be, um, I think it's a difficult time to parody people in general because we're at a moment when um, nothing is funny. Nothing is funny and everything is political. So they do a joke suggesting that Biden uh, can't remember something. Well, that's actually, you know, that looks a lot like a Trump campaign attack ad. So people get furious, you know, there, and so I think there has to be, people are less willing to kind of uh, say, oh, okay, it's fine to do that in a, in a humorous realm because we're realizing that what happens in the culture then affects what happens in our politics and vice versa. So I, I, th- I don't know. I'm, I don't have an answer for you, but I'm sure that it's a challenge. <laughs> and on top of that, all of the, you know, doing a socially distanced or, or yeah, at least, sure um, you know, in-person SNL that keeps everyone safe, uh, they have their work cut out for them. That's all I know. Finally, Dave, you were so young when you started working um, at the White House. And so you're still so young now um, going into this. Are you, do you feel positive? Do you feel like the democracy can be saved? I absolutely feel like our democracy can be saved. And there are, are things that make me feel really positive. The uh, amount of excitement and energy for voting that I've seen this year, um, I, I think it even dwarfs what we saw in 2008. And given everything that's happened this year, the fact that it, there almost seems to be this joy in that people can finally go vote now that early, early voting has started. Um, that, I think, is really... Uh, it's nice. It's really nice to see. And I think more than anything, the fact that, you know, you, you have, I don't know, I'm like a old, I'm an old millennial, but younger millennials and Gen Z are not just getting involved, but they're staying involved, um, that they're, that, that being active and caring about these issues is, um, you know, it's, it's the rule rather than the exception. All of that makes me really hopeful. Um, I would say, you know, in that sense, I'm positive. And then there's another sense in which it is really um, extraordinarily sad that the United States has fallen to this point and we need the youngest people in our country to lift us up. Um, I think they will. I think that Democrats will ultimately, uh, you know, make some important fixes to our government and that Americans in general will come together to protect our democracy. But this was a self-inflicted wound. We didn't have to be in this position. And it's really, um, it's a tragedy that we're here. So I think that's the the twin feelings that I, I have right now um, is, uh, you know, this, it's an extraordinary moment. But, but I do think in the end, um, you know, we're seeing the beginning of the, the movement to set things right. David, thank you so much for taking your time with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to David Litt. His new book is called Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, and Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think. And you can follow David on Twitter at David Litt, L-I-T-T. And thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it. It really helps others to find us. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures love affairs and tragedies now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories from the makers of death of a rock star and death of a sports star this is death of a film star starring heath ledger marilyn monroe chadwick boseman robin williams carrie fisher and bruce lee 
Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.